0: Good morning. Welcome to you if you happen to be visiting here with us this morning. If you've been invited by one of our members, maybe a co-worker, a neighbor, family member, uh, we want to welcome you, let you know that you are most welcome here among us, that we're glad that you've chosen to join us. And the best thing that we can give to you is what we have sung and what we prayed and what we proclaim this morning is the good news of Christ. And so we invite you to not only be present among us, but that by God's grace, His Spirit would encourage you, refresh refresh you, and show you Christ this morning as we consider Him. We're going to be considering Him further this morning as we come to His Word, so would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke this morning. I'm going to take the next couple of Sunday mornings to consider various songs and outbursts of praise that come to us in the first couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel. This morning, we're considering Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 46. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you should find one somewhat near to you in one of the seats in front of you, and you'll find the portion of God's Word in that uh, Bible on page 803. Luke chapter 1. We'll be considering verses 46 through 55, but let's place it in the broader context and let's begin reading for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it, be according, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Having heard God's word together, would you join with me in praying that God would bless the preaching of his word to our hearts? Father, with the psalmist, we take comfort in and we pray that you would be the one who leads the humble in what is right, knowing that you graciously teach sinners in the way. Lord, we bow ourselves before you, humbling ourselves, admitting our own great need, and yet mindful of your great ability and your great provision to sustain and satisfy, to provide not just earthly bread, but the very bread of life. Father, cause your word to be effective among us. Father, we pray that you would cause your word to find place in our hearts, that it would be prepared by your own spirit. Lord, as we hear it, we pray that you would cause that effective work to be wrought in us, that we would lay it up in our hearts, that we would practice it, that we would apply it, and that we would proclaim it to all who would listen. Father, do this work this morning by your own Spirit, the work that causes good fruit to be born in our lives, the sort of fruit that remains, the sort of fruit that brings you great glory. Lord, we pray and we ask that you would be so kind to us that you would hear us in our humble estate, that you would satisfy us and fill us with Christ, we pray. Amen. Somewhere in the early 2000s, the trend of gender reveal parties took our culture by storm. What started as cutting into cakes revealing pink or blue layers somehow evolved into confetti cannons and pyrotechnics and elaborate Rube Goldberg machines, all simply to reveal the gender of a blessed child. And as extravagant and as creative as these gender reveal parties have become, there is no greater birth announcement than the one that we have right here in chapter Luke, in chapter one of Luke. For one... It's delivered by an angel. Anytime an angel, the angel Gabriel, no less, shows up and announces the forthcoming birth of your son, you are dealing in a whole new stratosphere of importance and reverence as to what God is doing. And secondly, not only because of the messenger, but the message itself of what this angel Gabriel says We just read back in verse 32 that the substance of this announcement has to do with who this baby is. Verse 32, he will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is not just great news on the surface of it. This is great news in the substance of what is being fulfilled according to what God has promised throughout all of Scripture. An angelic messenger reveals God's plan to send his son to rule and to redeem. How do you respond to an announcement like that? Well, Mary, she responds, and her response is recorded for us here in Holy Scripture, and it's our focus this morning. It's a response of praise. It's a response of praise that's actually filled with the language of Scripture. There are striking similarities here in Mary's prayer, not only to Isaiah and the language of the Psalms, responding to God with this reverent awe and rejoicing, but there's striking similarity to... Hannah's prayer. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah, also a mother, receiving news that she shall also bring forth a son. And Mary, no doubt aware of this great provision that God had brought into Hannah's life, finds her own song, her own expression of praise being filled with the same sort of language that we find in Scripture elsewhere. You and I are to respond likewise. We've just heard this great announcement, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. Regardless, we are to respond likewise, because the announcement of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh is the greatest news that we will ever hear, and it brings forth the greatest transformation that we could ever experience. To hear that Jesus is the royal king, God in the flesh is cause for great rejoicing it will be the ultimate great reversal and it is evidence of a great remembrance. Great rejoicing the great reversal because of God's great remembrance. Consider what Mary's song of praise proclaims to us that Christ in coming according to God's promise, is first and foremost a cause for great rejoicing. Look back at the language of verse 46 as Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The news of this son, of this Christ, is cause for great rejoicing, not only for Mary, but also for others. Consider how this is a cause of rejo- rejoicing for Mary herself. As familiar as this announcement may be to our ears, we need to move beyond the stock images of a nativity scene and nostalgic Christmas tunes just for a moment. Attempt to lay hold of what Mary has just experienced. God has had favor on you, Mary. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you And there will be a baby in your womb that is not profane, but is holy, because he is the Son of the Most High. And this child, Mary, is a promised son. He is the one who rightfully sits on the throne of Psalm 2. And he's David's greater son. And Mary has just heard that Elizabeth has announced that this baby in her womb is her Lord? Why is it that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? Let the weight of that just rest upon you for a moment. And is it any wonder that this humble servant of God responds with praise from from the depth of who she is? She uses this language of my soul and my spirit my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior now the mystery of the incarnation itself god becoming flesh the mystery of that alone is worthy of god being praised but for the purpose for which god becomes flesh is even greater wonder and for greater praise He's God, my Savior, and he reigns in all of his royal might, and yet he has done, what does Mary say, great things for me. This is the sort of joy and rejoicing that moves us beyond mere lip service because it wells up from us within our soul. It is spiritual praise reflecting the affections of an awakened sinner who realizes something that he is God, and yet he is my Savior, and my soul rejoices. My spirit magnifies him. Now, in order to rejoice like this, you need to see what Mary sees. You need to see that he is God, and that he's Savior. Because if we ever try and detach those two realities, we not only do Christ great dishonor, but we extinguish the burning coals that fuels spirit-driven praise. If you detach the reality that he is God from him being savior, you are left with a deficit and you are left with a distorted gospel. These twin themes fill the pages of our bibles and though they are distinct and we should not mend them or meld them unhelpfully, they're never to be separated. God saves in his holiness and might to reveal his mercy to sinners. God, my Savior. Now, as personal as this news was for Mary, notice that it wasn't restricted to her alone. It was for her, but also for others. Because she says in verse 50 that his mercy that she's just sung about is for those who fear him, from generation to generation. The great rejoicing that Mary is testifying of, it's not limited to Mary alone. Though she is particularly blessed and that she's the mother of her Lord, the reason for her rejoicing is not limited to her alone. This can be the experience of any who fear God. The royal proclamation of God's mercy, it goes out through all the land and the citizens of the earthly kingdom, they ask, well, who is this mercy for? And the herald responds back, for all who fear his name, for all who take the great king at his word and respond to him accordingly. To fear God is to believe him. It's to take him at his word. The opposite would be to scorn his word, to think lowly of his word, to dismiss his royal decree. And the great expression of our reverence for God is seen ultimately in our faith and our repentance. We hear who he is, we hear who we are, and we agree by bowing in contrition. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it means to fear God, that you hear him and you respond accordingly. Now, notice how Mary's song of praise turns outward as this evangelistic announcement to others. He's looked upon me in my humble estate and he'll have mercy upon all those who fear his name. Mary's song of praise is praise, but it's also praise that it's evangelistic, and in many ways, it's a reflection of what we're doing here this morning. It's a reflection of our gathering. It's a reflection of God's people gathering together to say, he who is mighty has done great things for me. He's had mercy on me. We're magnifying our God this morning as we've gathered for worship, but In doing so, we are testifying as God's people that his mercies, though it's come to us, it's not restricted to us because we're proclaiming that it is for all those who fear his name throughout all generations. What we're saying is that the exaltation of Christ and the magnification of his name, it's intended to be evangelistic. We spread the good news by proclaiming the good news. We spread the good news by rejoicing in the good news. Doxology fuels missiology, or our praise is what fuels our mission. So when the saints of God gather on the first day of the week and they say, let me speak of the might and the mercy of God, as the people of God direct their praise unto God, friends, that is evangelistic. Because we are proclaiming not only what he does. But we're also saying this is for any who would fear his name. This is for any who would hear and turn and receive. Who would turn in faith and repentance. Isaac Watts understood this. What's the great announcement? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. That's the great announcement. And what's the next line? He gets very specific. He says let all the earth receive her king. Let every heart. Prepare him room. Doxology, missiology. To hear that Jesus is the royal king who is God in human flesh is cause for great rejoicing. But it's also an expression of this great reversal. Look back at Mary's song, verse 51. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. This announcement is the great reversal. Notice how the emphasis here has everything to do with this structure of contrast, not only in what God has done, but as we're going to see how he actually goes about doing it. Notice the great reversal in what God has done in the sending of his son. Mary's cause for rejoicing has everything to do with this reversal of what this means. Verse 52 and 53, he has brought down the mighty and he's exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry and sent away the rich empty. Mary says, my God has intervened and he's done something for the hungry and the humble. And in doing so, I see something of his might. I experience something of his mercy. Now think about what Mary says here and think about what you know about the larger context of your Bibles. Is what she says here not the very expression of what we read elsewhere? Is this an isolated experience, or is this a, consistent with the pattern that we see throughout Scripture, the resounding emphasis of Scripture? How often do you read of this great reversal in what God does in bringing about his purposes? He puts down Babel, exalts Abraham. Go read 11 and then 12 of Genesis. He puts down Pharaoh, exalts Moses, puts down Nebuchadnezzar, exalts Daniel, puts down Saul, exalts David. Again and again, the might and bravado of worldly wisdom is crushed before divine wisdom. Now, fellow Christian, at this point, it would be very easy... To draw an us and them comparison. To read something like this. Sit back and say, yep, those sinners are going to get it. I got a Christmas song to prove it. Because our God is for us. Amen. That's true. But don't gloss over this too quickly. We are all filled with a sense of our self-importance. The sin of pride runs deep. We are so often convinced of our own sufficiency and our own strength. So it's not that the Christian is not prideful is that the Christian is someone who knows that unless God did something to them, they would remain standing firm in their heart and state. And they know that the remaining corruption of sin means that expressions of pride are still going to corrupt ambitions, thoughts, reasoning, emotions, relationships. Thankfully, God opposes us in our pride. That's a fearful statement and a comforting statement. The difference between fear and comfort is if you're in Christ or not. To hear that God opposes me and my pride, and to know that I am in Christ and I am his son, I am so thankful that he tells me and deals with me for my good. To not be in Christ, to not be clothed in his righteousness and assured of your forgiveness and his heavenly father's love upon you, that is a terrifying statement to know that he deals with your pride to bring you low. The only ones who sing of the might of the Lord are those who've been convinced of their own weakness. So Christian, rather than glossing over this and doing the cheap us and them comparison and moving on, we would more rightly and more faithfully and more helpfully read something like this and pray, God, scatter our pride. Scatter my pride. Tear down those deluded thoughts of my self importance. Verse 51. And we would follow that prayer up by saying, God, cast down my thrones that I've set up for myself, that I attempt to rule my life from. Verse 52. That's why the language of our confession in chapter 8 says, Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God, and so that we can be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies, we need his kingly office to do what? Convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. We need King Jesus. We need him not only to rule the nations, but we need him to rule our hearts, to convince us, convict us, subdue us, and preserve us. So the repetition and the emphasis are God's way of alerting us here to, to the importance of this truth. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Take heed, hear, and learn from the rebuke that Christ gives to the church at Laodicea. Do you remember this word? It's In Revelation 3, 17, it says, "For For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and to... Have to, and to, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I'm rich. I'm in need of nothing. And yet what Mary says, the giving of this king to be seated upon this throne, to come into this kingdom, means that all earthly thrones, all opposing thrones, everyone who says, I am in need of nothing, will be brought down. Is this not the great reversal and the great paradox of Scripture? Those who see their need for Christ and express their dependence and humility upon Him, who are they? They are the ones who are filled with the best things. They are the ones who find themselves abundantly satisfied with all the spiritual blessings that are found in Christ. Those who are weary, those who are heavy laden, they are the ones who actually find rest in Christ. Those who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness, they are the ones who are satisfied. But those who insist that they're rich, that they need nothing, with no sense of hunger, no sense of need, full of themselves, full of their own righteousness, they're sent away from his door. As one writer said, if you come full of self, you're sent away empty of Christ. The gospel announcement is a great reversal, and it's the announcement of this great reversal. The mighty are brought low, but the humble are exalted. The rich are sent away empty, but the hungry, and only the hungry, are filled. This is the pattern and this is the emphasis of God's word. It's only the sinners who will be made righteous. And it's only those who insist that they are righteous apart from Christ will be damned. Hear the plea of Scripture. And hear what God's loving care says to you. To humble yourself. To freely admit your poverty. To freely acknowledge your hunger. Because he delights you to satisfy. He delights, to fill, and to enrich with all grace. This is the great reversal in what God does in Christ. But it's not only the announcement of what he does. We need to see that this is the exact announcement of how he does it. Mary's song, it's not only a description of what Christ does for all who put their trust in him, But it's really a foreshadow. It's really a pattern for us of how God is going to bring this great experience of mercy about. It's through these same patterns of exaltation and humiliation that the riches through poverty experience that that Christ is victorious. We refer to this as the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. It has everything to do with the way in which God accomplishes the salvation of his people. It's through the sinning of his son, yes. But in what way? Well, Philippians 2 is helpful. Verse 5, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is humiliation and there is exaltation. That's why in our catechism asking these questions, wherein is the humiliation of Christ Consist, answer, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, being buried, and continuing under the power of death for a time. His humiliation, and where is his exaltation seen? Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day and ascending up to heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father and in coming to judge the world on that last day. What Mary is singing about is not only her personal experience of what God does, but how he does it. Exaltation through humiliation. Riches. That comes, by the way, of poverty. Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So do you hear, do you see the emphasis of Scripture? The mighty arm of God, as Mary said, it's revealed through this paradoxical method of sending a royal son into abject humiliation, crescendoing then to this magnificent exaltation in order to accomplish the salvation of God's people. Church, if this is the pattern in which Christ accomplished our salvation should we then not expect it to be the pattern of our lives as we follow after him? To be surprised at suffering, to be surprised at affliction, expecting that the glories of exaltation should be ours now, is to ignore a major emphasis of Scripture. Our present weight of affliction. It's to be compared with the future weight of glory. Instead of being surprised by fiery trials, as Peter would say, we're to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. We're people of faith. Living as strangers and exiles on this earth, as it says in Hebrews, making it clear by the way that we live that we're seeking a homeland, that we desire a heavenly country where God himself has prepared a city every single emphasis of New Testament exhortation presses this upon us, that it's not just the means by which God saves his people, but it's the very pattern by which he does it and the pattern in which followers of Christ follow him into. Suffering now, future weight of glory. Exiles now, seeking a heavenly homeland. Affliction now, entrusting our souls to our faithful creator that this is the great reversal and the great paradox. And so then, the evidence that we believe this, it will be seen in our patient endurance as we live by faith, not by what we feel alone, or to use the language of Scripture, not by sight, which includes all of that. And because Jesus has come and sits upon his eternal throne, ruling in righteousness, God's people are content in this great reversal, the greatest reversal ever wrought. That The humble and the hungry, the impoverished and the afflicted in Christ are the exalted and the satisfied. So what does Mary say? That this great royal announcement, it's for great rejoicing. It is certainly a great reversal. But ultimately, it's a great remembrance to hear that this royal son has come is the clearest expression that God has not forgot. Look back at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The unfolding story of redemption that you find in your Bibles is filled with all of these reminders that God has not forgotten his people, but that he remembers his promises. And the coming of Christ is the greatest, and it is the clearest expression of that promise. And what do we read in our Bibles? The promise of salvation was first given to Adam. God announced to him that through the seed of the woman that the curse of sin would be broken and that the serpent would be overthrown. Then, and very slowly and progressively, it unfolds step by step as we read our Bibles, the full revelation of God's promise as it comes into, ultimately, the New Testament. Because there in the New Covenant, what we find is that God was pleased to choose to ordain our Lord Jesus to be the mediator between himself and humanity, that God chose him to be prophet, to be priest, to be king, and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. God spoke to our fathers, promising to Abraham that from your seed, Abram, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That the great curse of sin, it has most definitely spread throughout all humanity, causing even creation to groan and the people of God to cry out. But God has not forgotten his promise. Just as he spoke, it has come to be. He hears the cries of his people. And he has responded by giving his son. And so we find the greatest assurance of this by hearing that he's remembered his mercy because all true sons of Abram do you know if you're a son of Abraham or not I'm not speaking of Abraham's seed according to the flesh but Abraham's seed according to the spirit Abraham's spiritual children are all those who hear and respond in faith to the promise of God revealed in Christ God's people look to Christ and they testify God has spoken, he's not forgotten, and the surest evidence of that is that a son has come. And this son has a divine right to sit upon a royal throne, and from that throne he rules in righteousness. In his might he extends mercy to all who fear him. His word is true, his promises are faithful, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So, what we're saying is that the good news of God becoming man to bear the curse of sin and secure the freedom of God's people, to bring down heaven to earth, ought to cause us to sing, it ought to cause us to rejoice. We ought to be able to sing with Mary, my soul and my spirit resonate with this uncontainable joy that my lips cannot but hold back the songs of praise that fill up unto my God. After all, he's looked upon me in my humble condition. And in his great might, he has scattered my pride. He has laid me low but I'm so thankful that he has laid me low because in my poverty, I see my great need. And it's through that great need that I see God's great provision in the giving of Christ. And so I rejoice in God, my savior. Friends, this is the unique thing about the gospel. It does something to us. It's not just information. It's not just the sort of announcement that somebody hands you as you walk through the mall and you look for the nearest receptacle. This is the sort of announcement that actually changes you. It's not ultimately about you in the end. It's about God and His glory, but it most certainly concerns you. And then it announces the provision of forgiveness for sins, for all who put their trust in Christ. It's not only announcement about what God does, which is most certainly true at at a forensic level, which we are legally declared righteous, but it's much more than that. At a visceral level, it does something to us. It's not just knowledge of facts and reasonings. It's something that says joy and rejoicing spilling forth from my life. The gospel does something to us. It takes us from being so infatuated with ourselves in our own little world and awakens us to the magnificence and the greatness of God to which we sing, my soul magnifies the Lord. Can you say that God has done something for you? Do you have some great sense of guilt that he is pardoned. Great sense of judgment that you know that you deserve, but that he has absorbed himself upon his shoulders upon that cross. If that is true, then Christian, I exhort you to join the chorus of God's people, to not only lift your voice and song, but respond by lifting your life up to him as this, testimony of his worth and of his goodness we are those who then hear of that and then we turn in faith accepting and receiving and resting in christ alone for all of our forgiveness assurance and patient endurance because of what god has given to us in his son so may the lord continue to bring glory to himself magnifying his name through this gospel of grace And as we spend time considering these portions of Scripture leading up to Christmas Day, may He be especially gracious to us as a church as we are overwhelmed of what He's done for us in Christ. Father, we pray that You would work within us to such a degree that Your gospel is not merely words that we hear, but that it is life that transforms us, that changes us, that brings forth this song of praise unto our God. Father, we are so thankful that you look upon the humble estate of your people, that you deal with us most certainly in all the display of your might and your holiness, but that it's turned towards us as your people, not in judgment, but in mercy. Lord, we pray that the expression of your mercy for those who are undeserving would be the very thing that compels us to live our lives, to endure joyfully, to live faithfully, to Proclaim loudly all that you've given to us in your Son. Lord, we pray, especially in this season as Christ is forefront, that we would experience such renewal in our own souls, such tremendous season of fruit as we consider what you've given to us in the giving of your Son. We pray. Amen.